And one of my life scriptures is Matthew 25, where Jesus starts talking about who has done it to the least of these, who have done it unto me. And I think that was a pivotal scripture in my life. That was where I started feeling called to people at the margins. Welcome to the Missing Voices Project. My name is Justin Forbes, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. I'm convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's get into it. Okay, hello, Martha Shin. Hi, Justin. How are you? Good. Good. I'm happy to have you in my office here recording the first episode of this podcast. And it's right that we start with you, Martha Shin, because as Mary Sini and I were working on the proposal for this grant, uh, we spent months and months and months trying to figure out what we wanted to do, mapping it out on the whiteboard, obsessing over, over it over phone calls, things like this. And eventually we had this moment where we were sort of sitting back looking at it going, gosh, this is good. And then we realized, wait a minute, this is just what Martha taught us all those years. And it was sort of a funny realization that it was absolutely natural to the DNA of the Flagler College Youth Ministry Program. And that was in large part, well, it was because of you and the way that you taught and the way that you led the program all those years. So Martha Shin, you were the teacher, you were the professor of youth ministry here at Flagler College for how many years? That's always the, the best question. I started question. teaching when, right after I graduated with Matthew in 78, team teaching with her. So let's do some math. 78, <laughs> I'm not 20, and I retired in 15, whatever that is. 37 <laughs> years. 37 years. So you taught the youth ministry program at Flagler for 37 years. You retired in 2015. And... When I think of, when, when somebody says, you know, who is Martha Shin, I think of like a matriarch, sort of how I think about you. I think of someone who's the best listener I've ever been around. Um, I think there's very few people in our community that have loved and cared for and listened to more people. Maybe even more important than that, the way that you've shaped so many people to go do that themselves. I think about moms and dads. I think about youth ministers in our town. So I think clearly... Your ministry of teaching and ministry of presence, as you would have taught us, uh, has been in, in, you know, incredibly significant and immeasurable. But there's a part of the way that you did that that naturally would have led Mary and I in the design of this project to be thinking about young people at the margins of society in the church. And it was a funny realization that that moment when Mary and I thought, oh my gosh, this is just what Martha was teaching us all along. Um... And we realized that there was actually other people, other students of yours that had gone on to do this sort of work. So the fun thing in, in this podcast is we're going to actually interview a bunch of those folks who have gone on to do amazing work with young people at the margins. But it kind of all comes back to our root system, which was you in this program. 
So I wanted to ask you, why did you do that? <laughs> why did you why did you teach the program in that way and what shaped you to be thinking that way? Where did that come from? Um, well, I think it started when I was in high school and I remember I grew up in the Baptist church, but between my 10th and 11th grade year, <clears throat> I recommitted my life to Christ really at a revival at our mm-hmm. church. And I started reading the Bible that summer. I had one of those good news paper Bibles, oh, yeah. paperback Bibles. And I just I just found myself reading the Bible in a different way. I saw Jesus as this radical person that no one had ever told me about in Sunday school. And just reading <laughs> the Gospels, I just started reading them. You know, and I was writing down in the back of my Bible all these questions, like, what, what, where's, where's this been all my life, you know? So, all my life at the age yeah, of 15. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then I, I moved to Atlanta and got involved with Young Life in my junior, halfway through my junior year. And I think that was a place where um, I, I was encouraged to grow. I, I've always been to church and committed to the church. But at that stage, when I went to church and asked questions, they were like, either you're not praying enough, or Mm. that's not good to doubt, or the things that I was struggling with, I didn't really find answers there. It was more in my campaigner group through Young Life, Mm -hmm. that my Young Life leader encouraged us to ask questions of Scripture and really delve in. And um, it's just, and then I had this Young Life leader in Atlanta who was (laughs) left staff and got involved with a very, um, he was involved with Koinonia Partners, Mm -hmm. and so we went to a couple of conferences, this friend of mine, we were in high school. (laughs) You were in high school going to Koinonia conferences. Yeah, and um, they called them rap conferences. Anyway, it was a bunch of radical stuff, anyway. So, but long story short, I remember speaking at club in my senior year, and, and one of my life scriptures is Matthew 25, where Jesus starts talking about who has done it to the least of these, mm-hmm. who've done it unto me. And I think that was a pivotal scripture in my life. That was where I started feeling called to people at the margins and got involved with future teachers and started tutoring kids in the inner city in Atlanta. Hmm. Um, and then when I um, married Walter and we were involved in Young Life in Florida, my mentors just reaffirmed all the things that I had begun to discover in scripture like Hmm. Les, Comey, um, Mary and Charlie Scott, um, Matty Hart, of course. I taught with Dr. Hart for 19 years Hmm. and her understanding of scripture and what she taught me about teaching and then probably Henry Nowen was one of the people that pushed me a lot about listening. So, um, that's sort of the theological basis. So when um, I graduated from Flagler and became the area director here, I really had never done contact work. I was terrified to become <laughs> the Young Life staff person because at the time, I mean, Walter had been an area director. I didn't feel like I fit the stereotype. I'm you an and introvert. Walter are a little different. Yeah. Walter <laughs> can talk to a fire hydrant. And the thought of going into a high school and going into a cafeteria was terrifying to me. But um, at the time, I was in counseling, and I just finally realized that what happened was I was just afraid of failing. You know, it wasn't that I didn't feel called. So right. went ahead, 
started going to do contact work. You know, I walk into a cafeteria. I just started talking to all kind of people. I couldn't mm. imagine, you know, I talked to other people and I'm like, how do you not go talk to black kids when you walk into the cafeteria and white kids? You know, and mm. I remember there was this one table of young women who they were so hard. But I just felt like God was like, go over there and talk to them. They mm. never came to Young Life. Yeah. But I built a relationship with them. Yeah. And this girl had, her brother had gotten killed by a, like, you know, no one ever knew who hit him and he died. She just was so hardened, you know. And it was just like, so for me, I don't know. It's just, that's what I felt called to right. from the very beginning. And my ministry was reaching out. So, and it's important to note that when you were doing this, there were not very many multicultural expressions of youth ministry. No, <clears throat> and I felt like I, I do have to say, and Walter, Walter was really the the initial person who got called to do the program, and he and Dana and I were a team. Um, the region sent Dana to help at the beginning of the program for a couple of years, yeah. and um, but we were just always pushing the margins. I mean, I think one of the <clears throat> Early memories of Flagler was we had something that was called 914, which was really like Young Life College. Of course, sure. nobody was doing Young Life College. Right. It met at 914, <laughs> and we just said, show up. And right. our students were doing Young Life ministry. I mean, people were becoming Christians on campus. It was like crazy. It just like yeah. grew. And then people were doing the summer program with Les, like my sister. She came back. And that was, I mean, we only had St. Joe and St. Augustine High, and so we had a lot of leaders, and we were, so my sister felt called to start junior high ministry, which nobody was doing junior high ministry right. back then. Right, um, We actually drove the Flagler vans to go pick kids up. They let us use those. My sister, can you imagine? <laughs> no. Being no. 20, driving Flagler vans. Sure, take the college Going van. over go to West St. Augustine, picking kids up. <laughs> then we had a woman on the on our committee who worked at the deaf, deaf and blind school, but she was in the blind department. And she mm -hmm. said, I want club with <clears> the <throat> blind kids. So I was like, okay. So start. I started doing blind club. and um, I think that's part of, part of your story that people are not really aware of, is that you were doing multicultural ministry and sort of crossing racial boundaries before that was a popular thing to talk about. That was still perceived as a threat in most places at that time. And it still is, yeah. not in many ways. Mm -hmm. But you were doing that work. You you began to validate and prioritize middle school students as people to take seriously. That was, mm -hmm. an, you were an early adopter to that way of thinking. Yeah. Um, obviously women in ministry was still a big thing that was unfolding, it still is sadly, but it was still unfolding uh, or, or maybe was beginning to unfold. And so, I mean, what was that like for you being a young woman coming into a space of ministry where there not weren't very many other women in leadership? I mean, you were around Maddie Hart, which was amazing, and you had Mary Scott, which was amazing. So there's some forerunners right around you, I guess. Maybe that's part of that. I don't know. Yeah, I think I felt comfortable where I was right. here in St. Augustine, sure. and I had the support around me. But when I went to Young Life things, like conferences and things right. like that, it was uncomfortable. I would have people, men, come up to me and say, I don't believe you should be doing what you're doing. Right. You know, I'm like, I'm a person. It's, I'm not a, right. uh, a cause. <laughs> um, and, but I, I right. think my approach has always been trying to win people over just by 
making friendships with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. I, although I know he called people out, but right. I guess my style is a little more just moving alongside people and trying to build relationships and bridges, which, you know. Well, I think you start there, but we all sort of jokingly talk about Martha's, you know, quieter, uh, she'll smile, but when she speaks, you better like shut up and listen. <laughs> you know, so your words have real weight to them. So when you do assert yourself, there's power behind that in a way that is more akin to Jesus calling people out the way you just talked about. I have those stories in my background. (laughs) (laughs) So women in ministry and and crossing racial boundaries and middle school kids and deaf kids. And I mean, even to this day, you're still a volunteer working with young people with disabilities. So this has always been a part of who you are. And that goes back to reading Matthew 25, your junior year of high school. And so then you began to put some of those ideas into your courses, teaching, and then you helped students walk into that way of thinking about life and ministry and their own vocation. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about, talk about that role as you know, doing this sort of work from the place of being the, the professor at a college? I mean, that's different than being on the Young Life staff or working in a church. I mean, it's a different seat to sit in. Yeah. Um, and again, I think... Um, Matty and Les, I learned a lot from them, and especially, I think Matty was different than a lot of professors, and she had to win her way here as an um, academic person. And, but she also taught, I mean, she was real involved with the students, and yeah. listening and guiding them to go to seminary, and so I just learned a lot from her, I think. Um, but I also think learning to listen came through going to counseling myself and really? being in therapy a number of years. I really think I learned to listen from Lewis, our pastoral counselor. Hmm. And it was just something I carried into my ministry and began to see the value of it. Um, even though I wasn't professionally trained, I could see how it just, you know, really helped in guiding students. I think another thing that I was aware of is just that I've, feel like God had called me to be with people in the gaps in their life because college mm. is a, a time when people are figuring out who they are. And oftentimes, I don't think I felt real successful, like people would come here and struggle with their faith going through the program and doing a religion major and youth ministry minor. They were struggling with lifestyle issues, hard choices of being in college, trying to do ministry. And so a lot of times I wouldn't see, I'd see people 10 years down the road like, wow, look at them now, you know, God's mm. really using them. But when they were here, I'd feel like, what a mess, you know? <laughs> Why do I have to be here with people when they're a mess? But that's... I'd rather be at the high points with you. Yes. You don't mind. <laughs> um, and so, and yet I, I think the other scripture is, is the John 12, I think it's 24 about the grain of wheat falling into the ground Hmm. and I know that's the gospel message of death and resurrection and I think that's how we grow is through suffering Hmm. and so I just feel like I've always called been called to be with people in their suffering and that's not always comfortable but I think that's where we see the growth take place a lot of times it wasn't maybe here but later on when I began to see the fruit of what they had been through while they were in college so right I don't know yeah sharing <clears throat> sharing in their suffering as a way of thinking about uh, teaching is a pretty different idea 
Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. I mean, you're one of these few teachers who years after people graduate, they like make their way back to St. Augustine. It doesn't hurt that it's St. Augustine. Yeah. That, that helps, right? But they come here as much for you as anything to come back and see you and bring their spouse or their children. And they, and they sort of have this like pilgrimage to be with Martha again. No. To sit. <laughs> I, I mean, that's that. maybe a little <laughs> overstated, but, but I do think people come back to town and they want to see you. So it's a very normal thing for people to, you know, oh yeah, I went back to St. Augustine and I got a coffee with Martha or I went over to Martha's house. I mean, I think about some significant things that happened with people when they came back to be with you in the way that you walked with them through their life. So I, that's a very different way of thinking about teaching. I mean, that's definitely, you've impacted my mindset as to what it means to be a professor in that way significantly. So what a, tell us more about this idea of walking with students, not just through college, but through their life and watching them grow into ministry and what that has been for you. Well, I think for me, I don't know. It's just, it's, I guess, the way I understand ministry and Jesus doing ministry. But I think also I've seen how God, what God has taught me through my students, which Hmm. I've learned so much about, one, through kids I've worked with, about other cultures, whether it's urban culture, what it means to be blind. I think, I feel like I have to be open to being taught by my students. And they just, even in, you know, just listening and watching them be transformed by the gospel is just, it. It's hard sometimes, but it also is very hopeful. Yeah. And I guess it really reaffirms the reason I do the stuff I do or the way I taught. Sure. And um, even in the midst of the messiness. So. I like that idea of you being taught by your students. And I think that the heartbeat of the Missing Voices Project is this working assumption that we are going to walk with 12 congregations into these spaces where young people at the margins of society and the church exist. And our assumption is that we're going to be taught a lot by these young people, whether it's young people with disabilities, young people who have been or are incarcerated, whatever it might be. The assumption is that they have something to teach us about God, about ourselves, about ministry, about fellowship, about friendship, about all these ideas that you've been talking about. Would you have, have there been any people in particular, and I think especially young people at the margins that like we're talking about, that have deeply impacted you or helped shape your understanding of who you are or who God is, something like that? I think probably one family is um, one of the kids I got to know, this warm, young woman, Erica, at the high school, who started, I got to know her. She had a two-year-old, and she started coming to Young Life, and Richard, her son, she asked me to be his godmother, which I had no idea. I was like, what? You know, <laughs> so we all went to church, and um, I became Richard's godmother. And actually today, he's he and his wife are having a baby. I just saw it on Facebook. They're at the <laughs> hospital. I mean, his second family. But anyway, walking with the James family through Erica's probably 50-something now, that just mm. blows my mind to wow. think that I still have a relationship with how old was she when you met her? She was like 15. Okay. I think she had Rick when she was like 13. So that was probably the closest family, which 
you know, they lived in the projects. Um, that was just, I just had a whole education and it was just learning. Being with her, she taught me so much about the world she lived in and what it was like. Um, later on, you know, I remember her coming and sitting in my kitchen telling me that she, after three children, decided or she felt like she was gay. Um, and I, I think she came thinking I might judge her or turn her away or whatever. And right. so it's just like, you know, walking with people on a lifelong journey is just what you do when you get to know each other and right. you're committed to them. And um, and watching Richard grow up and then going to jail for a little while, but now he's really on a good path and serving God and rapping and witnessing. And so anyway, that's just <clears throat> one family. And that's, you know. What do you think they taught you about God? Hmm. That God is with us no matter what. Hmm. Um, they may express it differently, but um, just that God's faithful. If you were going to try and encourage a church <laughs> to walk alongside a family like that, or to walk alongside Rick, and you know what's funny is you've talked a lot about your work at Flagler College and through Young Life, but you've also been deeply committed to the church the whole way through, and that's been a big part of who you are as well. And so if you were to help a church think about this, what would that maybe look like? A church comes to you and says, Martha, help us out. We're trying to figure out how to walk with Erica and Rick. <laughs> a heavy sigh. <laughs> why the I heavy mean, sigh? I... Let's, why the heavy sigh? Um... You can say what you're thinking. We'll edit it if you want. Okay. <laughs> I think I've um, I've always wondered, being such growing up in the church, I've always wondered why I could never envision myself being a youth minister at a church. And hmm. I think partly, at least when at the time when I was younger, I felt very limited by the church. Um, I felt not supported a lot of times in my ministry through Young Life, or it took me a long time to win the support of a pastor for them to really understand the ministry of reaching out beyond the, the walls of the church. So that's always been a frustration and attention, I yeah. guess, attention. Do you think that's because you were a woman? Do you think that's because of who you were working with? Or is it just all because it. it was outside the boundaries of the church? All of it, okay. yeah. All of it. Um, and I would bring kids a lot of times. I, I used to love to bring this one blind girl. She would love to come and she loved to stand at and be a greeter with me. <laughs> And it was so much fun to watch the people at the church. You know, they hardly knew what to do with a blind African-American kid standing at the front steps of, of the church greeting them. But it was, <laughs> she loved it, and she was so friendly. Wow. I think um, the main thing I would say is to leave the comfort of where you are and listen to people's stories. Get to know people outside the church and just listen and stop talking. Um, my experience a lot of times with the organized church 
I remember going to the um, pastor, what do you call it, the ministerial alliance early on and when I was a Young Life staff person because I was trying to get the churches to help with transportation for um, club because everybody had vans and we didn't. And I remember going and telling them about what I would like to see happen. And all they did was like pummel me with theological questions about doctrine. And I'm like, we don't teach doctrine. Um, they were like, our congregation wouldn't want kids like that riding in our vans. And I remember leaving, you know, that was a deep hurt, I think, for me. And I remember getting, and I actually took this kid who was a Flagler student who was African-American with me to the meeting. And we got outside and um, I just burst into tears and he was ready to go back and beat them up, I think. But I was like, calm down, you know. You're like, go ahead. So, you know, I think a lot of times for me, the church gets hung up on a lot of stuff to me that's not that important. Mm -hmm. And I know it's important in some worlds, but sure. I don't think it's the heart of the gospel. And um, I really just have always had attention with that and yeah. I like I said I think some churches are trying harder today to move outside their walls and I'm so excited about that I really am well tell us a story about that well I do see stories of hope I mean I think some of our students are out there I think about Tyler I think about Zach Grant doing ministry with special needs people I think about Jace at my own Methodist church um, he doesn't have great numbers a lot of times in our youth group, but he really reaches a lot of kids that I think other people overlook. They're missing out on. Yeah. yeah. And um, so um, there, it, there is a lot of hope. And, you know, I, it just it was blowing my mind, I guess, a couple of years ago. I was sitting with this pastor, and he was telling me about all these initiatives of what they have to do now. Um, and these reports they have to turn in of going out beyond the boundaries of the church and holding these events. And and that was hopeful to me. I mean, it was sad that it's taken this long. And, yeah. <laughs> and the whole idea, I know our church is exploring a dinner church where it's just gathering people together to eat and talk about spiritual matters, but not in the church. It's right. an outreach to people outside the church. I, I think that's very hopeful. So, you know, I see God moving, and I see God moving in the world, in the church in mostly third world countries, but I think it's a it's a lesson and hopefully an eye opener for us in the US, you know, mm. of get on the bandwagon. Yeah. You know. I mean what'd you learn about youth ministry over these last couple of years by working with young folks with disabilities? I guess just the consistency of loving and relationships because with Kids and dis with disabilities has nothing to do with so much theology or doctrine, but it's showing up and showing Christ's love and then receiving it from them because they just give it unconditionally. They mm -hmm. just, they're just who they are. Right. There's no pretenses, which is sort of, I guess, refreshing, you know. Yeah, not sort of. Very refreshing. And I think I used to love that about the blind students. We would, um, since I lived across the street at the time, I could, right. back then the DMV was open, and I would just go over and have dinner, and then we'd walk around the track out there on the marsh, and 
watching kids lead each other, some that were real blind, you know, totally blind, totally sightless, and others who had some vision. And the thing about blind kids, they have, they don't judge on dress, color, anything, because they can't see each other. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons to me, would just to be sit there with them and see how they cared for each other in a way that no but no other culture I've been in right. does. You know, yeah. it's not by sight. Yeah, it's interesting. We call it a disability, but it's culture that disables them. Yes. Saying, well, this is what we consider to be typical or quote unquote normal, and so this is what it means to participate. And if you're not going to participate in this way then that's a disability when in fact it might actually have you know create an opportunity for them to see people as they truly are without actually seeing people through their eyes mm-hmm. that's and that was what i always good. loved about when we had all city club and we bring all our clubs together was just right. watching all the kids interact or just be exposed to each other you know and what they experienced from each other so wow that was you know what I loved about it too. Okay, so you, let's say that we find these 12 congregations, 12 locations around the state of Florida that are going to do this work with us. And we give you the floor as you welcome them and invite them into this. How would you want to encourage them to move into this space? How would you want to invite them to begin moving towards young people at the margins, whatever their project would be? I think first, I think they need some, I don't know what their training is, but they really need some teaching on incarnational ministry to make mm-hmm. sure, you know, I think that's where we always started in our classes, mm-hmm. is making sure people really understood what Jesus was doing in his ministry and reading the Gospels. Hmm. So training, making sure the youth pastor has that theological foundation and then working with volunteers to give them the tools to understand why they're going to do what they do. I think a lot of people have no clue what, what ministry is about. And so I guess it would be starting there and then encouraging people to be with kids outside of church, whether it's games or whatever their interests are, whether it's going to their drama productions, whether it's going to the coffee shop with them. I just think, and I know it's a harder world today because of all the restrictions of not being able to do things individually with kids, but you can do it in twos. Um, I just think... Going well, you, out where kids are. It's right. Just, <laughs> well, and you talked about having relationships with moms and dads, too. Yes. So this isn't just isolating this work to the lives of young people. You're talking about a bigger sense of community. Yes. And, but I think what you realize when you start working with kids on the margins, I will say, I think especially working with junior high or middle school kids, so many camps that we went on with Young Life, I would be astounded at the kids who showed up at the bus and I'd never met their parents. Wow. That they would let their kids go with me for a weekend. And my child was in middle school at the time. So I was a middle school parent. You were very aware. And I, no way. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I just, and yet 
Not that I wouldn't try to meet them. Sure. I mean, because I, I was an adult and I was a parent and I knew how important it was. Sure. And that was always a tension with college students was helping them. I don't think they felt real comfortable sometimes meeting parents and stuff like that. But that was a an edge we had to work on. But um, it's still, I think that's another thing is you have to, if you're going to work with kids on the margins, and I think DeVries talks about that, family-based youth ministry, you you have to become the family for a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Their families aren't going to come. I mean, that could be your goal. Right. And I think that is what brings families to mm. church is through their kids being ministered to. Right. But it doesn't always happen because some kids are parentless. Yeah. They don't have parents. Right. But they need to have a family in the church. And the church has to be committed to bringing them in and being a family to them. They're yeah. not going to come to family dinners and sit by themselves. Right. And... You know, so right. I think that's a big thing. Yeah, it's interesting. We're talking to a couple uh, folks about trying to do or trying to reimagine youth ministry in the group home foster care space. And so, you know, you bring up family there and you, it's what family? I mean, that's the very heart of the issue for that kid is family. And so having a bigger, broader sense of what family could be uh would be like the starting point for that conversation. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, it's got to be almost, I mean, it's got to be to me very intentful, especially if you invite kids like that into the church, mm-hmm. that there's somebody that's going to be there for them. Because how uncomfortable is that to be a foster kid or maybe even in a group home mm-hmm. and you show up and all these people are with their families? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if you're not intentful about that, they'll never come back. Right. Now, there's a young man that goes to our church right now that shows up to youth group. And, you know, at, at youth group, some of the prayer requests are my soccer game, my exam. And his request every week is for a family, yeah. you know. And so it changes the whole oh, yeah. the whole group. is completely, <laughs> beautifully changed by the reality of this young man's prayer request and him being who he is in that just being honest, you know. And it's also, like, gut-wrenching and painful. And he's 17, so he likely will not be adopted. And he'll probably age out of the system and not have a family. So then how could the church be family? I think of a—this doesn't have to be in the interview, but I think about a funny story like that. It was a mixed group of white white women, and one day she told us about her younger brother, how her father had taken him out. And hired this prostitute mm. to, so he could experience, you know, yeah, you sexuality. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like all the girls in the group. I'm sitting there going, "Oh my lord!" They're just like these little high school girls. Her eyes got so big, and you know, and I was like, "This is a real education. For, how do I handle this? How do I talk about this?" Uh-huh. You know, and so there's that. It's but again, it's just. A learning, you know, of listening and getting to know people where they are and loving them, you know. So, wow. so Martha, you've been in St. Augustine since 1975. You've really, you know, dug in here. You have deep roots in this community. How has that shaped who you are as a minister of the gospel, as someone who is a part of this broader family? I think it just... I remember going on Young Life staff, and when I had my interview, somebody said, you know, are you committed to five years? I was like, what? 
I can't even <laughs> think about one year. I didn't because That's I think great. because of my background, I had never been anywhere for very long. You moved a lot. Yeah. And so but over time I began to see the credibility that came with being I'm not saying that everybody's called to that. Sure. I think I was I think it's one of Peterson's books where he talks about people being pioneers and what's mm-hmm. the other side of it, but I think I began to see that my calling was to stay planted somewhere. Okay. And there's another book he wrote called Under the Unpredictable Under the Unpredictable Plant. Plant. Right. And yeah. a lot of I'd be so um, because all the students came and went and it was hard <sighs> saying goodbye part. and the staff people would come and go and I read that book a couple times after people left and I just thought this is but this is me. This is where God's called me to yeah. stay and be here long term and um but i think it's helped the credibility of the ministry of my life to be planted in one place and i think especially like when the first time we took urban kids to camp and sean drowned yeah um that was a time where i really wanted to leave i wanted to run away i for I don't know how many years after that you go to do contact work and you say, oh, let's go to camp. And they go, is that the camp where Sean drowned? You know, it's like, but living in a community and people knowing who you are and that you're here and you're faithful, that takes time and commitment. And I felt like it was like winning the right to be heard in in a community and not running away because it Mm -hmm. was really uncomfortable. I hated it. Um, you hated what? Just having that be the legacy for so long of uh, urban in the urban community was, you know, Sean don't Brown. let your kids go to camp. Sure. And then there were people who did, but it just was always back there, you know. Mm-hmm. But just trying to stay faithful, that's what I've just felt like God's call has been just not necessarily successful, but to be faithful. And that's what keeps kept me here, I guess. Mm. So. Successful, what do you mean by success? Well, success according to numbers in our culture. Yeah. I just don't think that's the gospel, but yeah. it's the world we live in. I think I think a big part of what you taught me and taught so many others was to redefine success. And I think having a, a theology of place, I think a, a ministry of presence, those sort of things redefined what success was. Mm-hmm. I think that was... If I had to try and articulate the implicit curriculum of my education with you, that's probably one of the undercurrents was, let's redefine success, and maybe Matthew 25 would be the way into that. It's sort of a harsh passage, too, though. Oh, it's brutal. But. But then we smile. (laughs) But Jesus was also hung on a cross. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. So. Wow. Well, Martha, thank you for recording this conversation with me. Thank you for being my teacher. I think, again, I, I think I said this in the beginning, but you know, there are people who are a certain kind of mom or dad or pastor or accountant or whatever because of the way they came out of your program. And these sentiments that you've been talking about in terms of paying attention to young people to margins and digging into a community and being there through the good and the bad, those kind of things have really shaped uh, a lot of folks over these 37 years of teaching. So I'm grateful for your witness, for your faithfulness. And uh, I hope that this project honors 
you know, your teaching legacy. People don't know, but you were one of the first people I called when we got news of the grant. <laughs> and I couldn't even talk through the phone <laughs> because I just lost it. And I was just expressing my gratitude to say, I hope that this grant uh, honors your teaching legacy. So I think my hope is that you'll be able to watch and be a part of this project with us. And uh, you'll do exactly what you've always done, which is to walk alongside faithfully and listen to people and uh, help them imagine faithful ministry at the margins. So that's exciting. Well, thank you. And I'm grateful for the people who've done it for me. So. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices Project. You can learn more about what we are up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu. That's missingvoices.flagler.edu. I want to thank Noble Media for their production of the podcast and Troy Aragon Buchanan for the original music. We believe there are good and wonderful gifts to be enjoyed and voices to be lifted up and heard that exist at the margins of society and the church. I hope today's conversation might just push you to keep these young people in mind. What if your youth ministry made room for the kids we talked about today? Until next time, be well.